that whether we are in a high school or a fairground or a parking lot or a movie theater or a tent or a church building, that you are here. You are with us. Your presence guides and strengthens us. You, by your power, give us what we need and by your grace to live lives that are honoring to you. This is not us. This is you. This gathering is not about us. It's about you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in our hearts this morning as we look at your word, as we seek to understand it with his help, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might change the way that we live. We are not here to make a check mark on the list of things to do for the weekend. We are here to hear your voice, and I pray that you would speak to us clearly. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I don't know if it was my weak faith or what, but I was sitting there listening to us all sing together and, and wanted to make sure and mention to you that we can buy more chairs. So, you know, don't, don't not come next week because it's a little squishy. We'll, we'll get more chairs. Don't worry about that. <clears throat> I didn't think that was going to be a problem the first week, but that's okay. We'll do it. <clears throat> On the dashboard of your car or truck, there are several little warning lights there surrounding your speedometer and your odometer and your fuel gauge and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if you knew this or not, but sometimes they're called idiot lights. <laughs> In other words, hey, idiot, something's wrong with your car. You should go get it checked out. Things like the check engine light, the oil pressure light, the temperature gauge, maintenance needed, seat belts, airbags, I'm sure there's a hundred more of them. You may be interested to know that uh, recently a survey was done with Gen Z and millennials and they found that on average they wait for, wait for it, eight warning lights to come on before they decide to call the garage and make an appointment to get things checked out. Apparently, they just keep right on driving no matter what. I think we do this in other areas of our lives too, though, don't we? We do this with our health and our bodies. Oh, I think I ate too much. But the next time food's on the table, guess who's there, ready to go? My heart is racing. My hip is sore. I can't breathe too well. I may be 10 or 20 or 40 pounds overweight. Those are warning signs, warning lights. Sometimes we do it in our marriages. My wife hasn't talked to me for two days. That's a warning light. <laughs> Guys, you need to check that out. You need to see what's going on. 
But we have a tendency as human beings to ignore warning signs and continue with our behavior, even if our habits are harmful or our patterns are destructives, destructive. We have a tendency to just keep chugging along, keep living life until the crisis is so great that everything shuts down, till that millennial's car just blows up. <laughs> And it's left on the side of the road for the scrapyard. Or until your marriage is in the ditch and you're looking for divorce lawyers. Or until your health is shot and the doctor says, if only we had known a little sooner. We do that with our spiritual lives. Hebrews has a tremendous amount of theology in it. We talked about it last week. Nine and a half chapters that we have looked at so far discussing what we need to know about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done for us, that he's the promised Messiah, that he, that he came to fulfill the law, to satisfy God's justice, that he provides salvation for us by grace, and that he opened a way into God's presence for us, that he intercedes for us every day. But as we've seen, the book of Hebrews also has warnings. There are seven warnings in the book of Hebrews. The writer wants us to be sure that we don't become spiritually lazy, that we don't become apathetic to those warning signs, to those warning lights that flash. And so he warns us in chapter 1, he warned us, to not drift away from the harbor of salvation. In chapter 3, he warned us not to harden our hearts to the word of God. In chapter 5, he warned us to not remain immature. In chapter 6, he warned us to not reject Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at the fifth warning in chapter 10 of Hebrews, and it is this. Don't despise God's grace. Don't despise God's grace. We've been given a lot of knowledge, haven't we? If you've been with us over the last 23 weeks, we've been given a lot of knowledge about who God is and who Jesus is and all the things that he has done for us. And the writer is saying, listen, with all of this knowledge, make sure that you don't become apathetic. Make sure you do not ignore it. My friends, we are a privileged people here. Do you realize we've talked a lot about the Israelites here in the book of Hebrews because they are referred to many times and, and the Hebrew culture and the sacrificial system. Do you realize how vague all of this seemed to them? Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, that it's like we're looking through a, a tinted window. We can't quite make out everything. We can see the shapes, but we didn't know all the details. Well, there's no excuse for us, my friends. We know the details. We know everything now. It has been revealed to us, and we must not take the grace of God for granted. Now, this passage we're going to look at here in Hebrews 10, 26 to 39, is very interesting because there's an extremely stern warning in the first half, but the second half brings hope and encouragement and, of course, even more grace. So we're going to look at it together. Look at verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read down through as we usually do and pause and try to 
explain it for you so we can put it all together at the end. Verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What do you think of those two verses? Good stuff, huh? You got those ones underlined in your Bible? What's the key to this section, these two verses? I think the key is that little phrase, the truth. Because everything hinges on how we respond to the truth. What is the truth? You know what the truth is if you have been here. You've heard us talk about it. The fact that we're all sinners as lost as we can be. The fact that there is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves or, or to satisfy God's justice. But because of his grace and great love for us, God sent Jesus. The Father sent the Son who was fully God and fully man to live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death. And in the greatest display of power in the history of the world, he rose from the grave. And if we confess our sins and we believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we are saved. That's the truth. Now, how do we, how do you respond to the truth? There are, there are two options is what the writer is saying. We can either accept it and be saved or we can reject it and be lost. Notice the wording he uses here in verse 26. If we keep on sinning deliberately, willfully, voluntarily, if you see the truth and you understand the truth and you willingly reject the truth, there's no more sacrifice for you. That's what he's saying here. The only thing that's left is judgment. And some of you, when you came in this morning and have seen the tent, were joking about camp meetings and revival meetings. And if you've been here very long at Moss Brook, you know I'm not typically much of a hellfire and brimstone guy. But we do happen to be talking about a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. It's real. That's what he's saying to them. That's the warning. If you despise God's grace, if you reject his grace, if you hear the truth and understand the truth and willfully reject the truth of salvation, then the only thing left for you is the horrifying reality that there will be judgment one day. And the scripture is very clear that the judgment is hell. I'm not trying to single us out or anything because we're not the only ones, but a lot of churches don't like talking about hell these days. Don't like talking about judgment. And to be honest with you, I don't like talking about it, but we must because it's true. It's real. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but the New Testament talks more about hell than it does heaven. It's real. 
and rejecting the truth is the only unforgivable sin. In Matthew, Jesus called it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's unforgivable. There is no other sacrifice. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So he takes a moment here to, to compare the process and the penalty for breaking the Old Testament law with rejecting Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, if you have read very much of the Old Testament, especially the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that contain the law, you actually read there that there are many, there were many violations of the Old Testament law that resulted in death. There are many things there that God said to Moses, if you break this commandment, you must die. It was severe. It was harsh. But the writer of the Hebrews says, how much worse, how much more serious even than that is it to reject Christ? Now, did you notice when I read those verses, did you notice in verse 29 what we do when we reject Christ? If you reject Christ, what you're doing, notice what he says. First of all, you trample the Savior underfoot. I've been going around this week just as I'm walking back and forth from the building to the tent or to my car or whatever. I've been bending down and picking up pieces of garbage off the ground. This has been a work site for so long, trying to tidy it up a little bit so it looked better for when everybody got here. Trash, old water bottles trampled into the gravel, candy wrappers, pieces of paper. What do we trample underfoot, folks? Garbage. Why? Because we don't care about it. It has no value to us. And that's what the writer is saying. We treat Jesus like garbage when we reject him. We trample him underfoot like he is of no value. Notice he also says we profane his blood. We not only reject his sacrifice, but we curse it. Blaspheme it. And we outrage the Holy Spirit. The word outrage is an interesting word. It means to insult. It means to mock. It means to treat with contempt. It means to be arrogant toward. This is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. Instead of being humbly grateful for the grace of God, rejecting it as arrogance. I don't need God's grace. I don't want God's grace. I'm just fine on my own. We treat it with contempt. Grace. Who needs grace? Verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is this such a dangerous place to be? Why does the writer warn 
the Hebrews, and us over and over about the dangers of being here. Why is this so dangerous? I want to suggest to you this morning that this is so dangerous because God has made some promises. Now, usually when we talk about the promises of God, what are we talking about? Usually when we talk about the promises of God, what are we saying? We're thinking about things like, I will never leave you or forsake you. My grace is sufficient for you. No one can pluck them out of my hand. I will provide all of your needs. You can do all things through me when I strengthen you. Those are the promises we like to look at, aren't they? But guess what? There's some other promises in the Bible. There's some scary ones, including these two right here. These are quotes from Deuteronomy 32. Very, very early on, God established with Israel that he loved them. And he would always provide for them. And he would give them a road to redemption through the Messiah. And when they sinned, that he would provide a way of restoration. But he also made it clear that if they rejected him, there would be judgment. And he reminds them of these truths that they'd heard their whole lives. They had heard these promises. Now we read these things, vengeance is mine, I will repay. How many people have you know those cute little embroidered signs that we put up in our houses, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How, uh, give us this day our daily bread. How many people have one that says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? <laughs> Anybody? You watch. Next week, I'm going to have one on my desk. Somebody, somebody's going to cross-stitch one and bring it right over. can God be so cruel? How could God possibly be so heartless for people to burn in hell? The horror of eternal damnation should not cause us to accuse God of having a love for vengeance. Rather, it should cause us to strive to understand the repulsiveness of our sin. When we choose to focus on the supposed cruelty of God, which many people do, I hear people say it all the time, when we choose to focus on that, we show that we're not convinced of the absolute filth of our sin. Why does God say vengeance is mine? Because he loves vengeance? No, because our sin is such a horrible blight against his holiness. We have a hard time accepting that we have horribly offended God and that we have blasphemed him and that we have trampled on his holiness. We think it's no big deal to do whatever we want. That we do not comprehend this, that we struggle with promises of God like vengeance is mine and I will repay, says far more about us and our comfort with sin than it does about God. 
Do not speak of the cruelty of God. Do not accuse him of loving vengeance because he has made a way. I mean, that's what we've been talking about for 24 weeks. So we've been talking about for 20 years. He has made a way. And it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, my friends, but it is an unnecessary thing to fall into the hands of the living God because he has made a way. Now there's a shift from this terrifying message in verse 32. But, he says, but recall the former days when you were enlightened and endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now I hope and pray, just like the writer to the Hebrews hoped and prayed, that you are not part of that first group. I hope you're not part of that. I hope you have not rejected Christ. I hope you have not trampled him underfoot and outraged the Holy Spirit. But that message needs to be preached. But now he comes and he gathers. It's like he's gathering his chicks. <laughs> he's gathering them around. He's scorching the earth here, my friends, because it's so serious. And then he gathers them and says, but please, for those of you walking with Christ, recall the difficult days when you endured and when you suffered, but you kept going. Now, why does he remind them of this? If they're Christ followers, if this second group, if he shifts his attention to those who have trusted Christ and who have accepted grace and not rejected it, why does he say this to them? Well, he says it because even though we are Christ followers and we have not rejected Christ, we have not blasphemed him, we have not taken his grace for granted, when we struggle with sin, inevitably we come to sometimes what? Doubt our salvation, don't we? And we fear falling into the hands of the living God. But struggle to honor God is different than outright rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not downplaying our sin. As Christ followers, we need to take great care to keep short accounts with God, to confess our sin when we are aware of it, to ask Him to cleanse us and to strengthen us. But that's different from rejecting Christ. That's what he's saying. He reminds them, look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He encourages them, and I encourage you, when you struggle with sin, if you are truly a Christ follower but you struggle with sin, I encourage you to remember how God has worked in your life, to remember how he has provided, to remember how he has answered and how he has used you even in the middle of great difficulty, even when losing what was yours. And that happens sometimes. Why? Notice what he says there in verse 34. Why? Why do we keep going? Because we have a better possession 
and an abiding one. It's been three and a half years that we've been doing this little dance, hasn't it? Actually, for some of you, it's been 20 years that we haven't had a home, but the last three and a half have been particularly tumultuous. But we've kept going from high school to fairground to greenhouse to parking lot to movie theater to tent. Why? Why have we kept going? Because something better is coming. Something better is coming. And, and it ain't that building. Although we could make an argument that that will be better than this. But that's not why we keep going. There is something better, better even than that building. It's heaven and eternity in the presence of God. Last year, we did our series through Philippians that we called Citizens of Heaven because Philippians 3.20 says, we're living here on this earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's lasting, it's eternal, and it is permanent I hope you understand this, that there is absolutely nothing in this world that is permanent. Did you know that? Nothing. Oh, yeah, you're not thinking about, nope, nothing. Nothing is permanent. Everything is temporary, even that building. You know what we're talking about? We haven't even got it finished yet. We're already talking about what our budget is going to be for maintenance and repairs. You know this if you have a house. You know this if you have a car. You know this if you have a marriage. It needs maintenance because it's not going to last forever. Verse 35. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So in the present circumstances, he encourages them to be confident. Why? Because our faith and trust is in Christ. And eternal life is the reward. Remember, we've talked about this the last few weeks, that eternal life is not just long, it is good. A lot of things in this life are long. That doesn't mean they're always good. But eternal life is not only long but good. It's everything that God has always intended for our lives to be. But you need endurance. Because the victorious Christian life is not the absence of trials. Victorious Christianity is not the removal of all of our fears and foes. If that's what you are looking for, if that's what you're striving for so that you can be victorious is that all the difficulty will be taken away and all those who stand against us will be gone, my friends, that will not happen in this life. Victorious Christianity is not success at the ballot box or in the legislature. Victorious Christianity is smiling through the tears at the graveside of one you love who you know is with the Lord because you believe in the resurrection. Victorious Christianity is showing love to an antagonistic neighbor because God loved you. 
Victorious Christianity is standing together arm in arm when jobs or homes or friends are lost. Victorious Christianity is standing firm and continuing to walk on when someone you love walks away. We need endurance because we will receive what has been promised to us. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. I I love this verse. What is it telling us? It's telling us that Christ's timetable is right on track. I mean, we've just talked about this ad nauseum, haven't we? When do you think Christ is coming back? Do you think this is it? Do you think this is as bad as it's going to get? Is this the end? Are we almost there? What are we going to do? When is he coming back? How much longer can we last? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not privy to that kind of information. Only one knows, and that is the Father in heaven. But his timetable is on track. The schedule is solid. And nothing's going to disrupt it. Nothing's going to change it. He's coming. And in the meantime, we live by faith as citizens of heaven in the middle of the mass of this world. And we must not shrink back. See that phrase there? We must not shrink back. Literally means to go backwards or to compromise We must not do that because a better life is coming. Warning, he says, do not despise God's grace. If you reject Christ and his offering, I have to tell you, there is no hope for you. There is only anticipation of fiery judgment. That's what the scripture says. Do not be arrogant before God. Humble yourself and confess your sin and beg for forgiveness. And if you are saved, please hear me say this. Don't you take God's grace for granted either. You may not have rejected Christ, but tell me, are there not days when we take his grace for granted? There are days when we say, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to say what I want to say. Please remember, my friends, that your sin is an offense to God. Please be careful of hating evil too little. You and I need to be sick of sin. We need to stop doing worthless things. And together we need to do the will of God and remind each other that something better is coming. Rather than despise God's grace, my friends, relish it. Be grateful for it. Humble yourself and admit that you cannot live without it. What a perfect passage of Scripture for us to use to lead into celebrating communion together this morning.
in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, his blood shed for us so that we might not have the anticipation of fiery judgment, but the wonderful promise of eternal life. That's what salvation is. Christ's death on the cross provided our salvation. And when we take communion together, we're giving thanks for God's grace. His grace that finds us and changes us and keeps us. In just a moment, we're going to pray and the ushers are going to come and bring communion for us. And as they do and pass it along through the rows, please go ahead and take the bread and, and then take the cup. And as the band plays for us and sings, I want you to quiet your heart. I encourage you to quiet your heart before God. Make sure that you are in good standing with him as you give thanks for Christ's sacrifice this morning. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, for his shed blood, for his broken body that provides our redemption. We are so thankful to be yours. I pray that there is not anyone here this morning who has rejected that grace, who has blasphemed your name and outraged the Holy Spirit, but that we might all be a part of your family. Only you know that, Father. There is someone here this morning that does not know you as their Savior. I pray that they would humbly confess their sin and understand and accept and receive the wonderful gift of salvation. For those of us who know and love you, Father, as we celebrate communion together, I pray that it would be a sweet sacrifice to you this morning, an offering of our humility and our gratitude. As we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, we give thanks, Father, for your grace. I'm sure probably nobody noticed, but I didn't read the last verse of the passage, verse 39. I want to read it for you now. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I love that verse. Now, is it just me? Or is that a uh, homologuminous? Huh? That's a creed. That's a confession. That's a rallying cry. We won't compromise. We won't be destroyed. We will have faith and God will preserve our souls. We need that, don't we? I got an idea. Why don't we say it together? We won't compromise. We won't be destroyed. We will have faith and God will preserve our souls. My friends, that is the promise of God to us who walk with him. Father, we are so thankful this morning for the truth of your word. I pray that we will have heard it as we have needed to. That we will live in the light of your grace, that we will not take for granted what we know, that we will despise our sin and cling to your strength. Father, help us to not compromise. 
We know when we walk with you, we will not be destroyed. We will have faith by your power, and you will preserve our souls for eternity. We base our lives on this truth today, together. Thank you for meeting with us. As we go out of here into our communities, I pray that we will be light in the dark places and that we will show your grace to all we meet. Thank you, Father. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. I hope you have a great week.